I like that red shirt, Al. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, I, I've gotten to the point where I, I don't question God and how he works and why he does things and how he puts things together. Um, but it was very interesting to me when I got a phone call from Steve asking me to preach this morning um, that that was, it, it was on my heart. I was thinking about that, and, I, you know, we can blame it on Jamie. Uh, let's blame it on Jamie. That would be good. Uh, but, uh, you know, we can, we can do a lot of things, but God works in very, very wondrous and mysterious ways. I do not claim this morning to have answers. Uh, in fact, I've got a whole bunch of questions that I just keep a- asking and praying about. Um, this morning when Steve and I prayed, uh, what he said is exactly what I hope to convey. And that is simply, these are God's words. I've tried to put them together in a way that's organized and will come across well. Uh, I hope that you will receive them as such. Uh, I want to really look at scripture this morning um, in the light of events uh, that have been taking place over the past couple of weeks. I feel that this is more powerful and more strongly needed by anyone as it is by us right now for us to take perspective and to understand that God is still on the throne. And the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. And beyond that, we've got a lot to look at and we've got a lot to to do and to say. But I want to look at things in that light. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. And please, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, I know there are some in the chairs. Um, I want to really ask you to be uh, what we call in education active learners. I'm going to ask you to be engaged today. Um, Not just listening to me. I I want you to to really work here this morning with your thoughts, uh, with your eyes and your ears, and and your minds and really let God, what God is saying sink in. Matthew chapter 22, verses 30, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. I, I think that's interesting just as we get started. Uh, all of a sudden here the reli- is a sect of religious leaders who don't have anything left to say. The Pharisees got together. Ah, we're better than the Sadducees. We can do this. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I'm not sure whether they wanted to know the greatest commandment or not. What I am sure is they were adversarial to Christ. They, they didn't like what he was doing. They didn't like what was going on. In fact, they were very opposed to what was going on. And so the question is asked in that manner, in that vein. 
So Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then the scripture that we had read this morning in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So we've got a concept of love. But this concept of love is somewhat subjective. It's somewhat abstract. And we want to know what this love looks like. And I believe that's part of why Jesus added that second part to when asked what the greatest command was. He added that second part in saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're starting to see what this abstract concept of love would look like, Jesus, because I know how I feel about myself. I know that I want to love myself. I know that I want to like what I'm seeing here. And so if I'm doing that, I know I want to do good things for myself. If I'm doing that, well, I want to do those same good things for others. And so now I'm beginning to get this concept of love. And so what I want to ask this morning is that same thing. What does love look like? What does it look like for us today? For those of us sitting right here, what would that love that Jesus is talking about look like? There's a theme that I want us to follow as we begin to look at these some scriptures and some specific events here. And that theme is this. If I want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, I need to watch what Jesus did. I'm going to put the entire focus on Christ this morning. I want to look at what he did. Yes, I know what he said. And instead of me trying to interpret that, instead of me trying to give my opinions, I want to see what Jesus meant by what he said by watching what he does. How he goes about things. So, what we're talking about here is a balancing act. There's a real balancing act. And one of the the key words, key definitions that I I feel like we need as followers of Jesus is that concept of a balance. Balancing love, balance with truth, balancing love with obedience. Okay? Balancing things. Not going way over here, not going way over here. But gaining that balance because that's what I see in Christ. As he taught, as he moved about, as he worked with people, as he interacted with people. That's what we see. We see that balance. 
So let's look at John 14 now, just the very next chapter. And we're going to begin to kind of define, kind of, kind of put some form, put some structure to this abstract concept of love. In chapter 14 of John, verses 12 through 15, first of all. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And then down to verses 23 and 24. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now we go back to verse 6 in the chapter and see Jesus answering, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we put this structure here to love together, and what we have is to find the way we need to find Jesus. To find the truth, we need to find Jesus. To find life, we need to find Jesus. Are we catching on to this common denominator here? I'm not much at math. I like colors, you know, red, gray, those kinds of things. But are we catching on to this common denominator here, finding Jesus? We want truth? Find Jesus. Do we want the way? Find Jesus. So let's go back to our theme again. If I want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said... I should watch what Jesus did. So what Jesus is doing is loving through or because of obedience to the Father. Real simplistic concept here. This isn't, this isn't something really tough to grasp. You know, by being obedient to the Father, what the Father wants, Jesus is loving. Okay, so now we're, we're gaining a little bit of structure here to this concept of love. So what I want to look at is I want to look at two events. One, um, I had the privilege, uh, because I was volunteered by my wife, uh, and that was a privilege and an opportunity, uh, to play the role of Jesus for the kids at VBS uh, in this event that we read about in John chapter 4. We're going to turn there in just a second. 
uh, about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, his encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. So let's go to John chapter 4. I love the sound of rustling pages. John chapter 4. We, we probably have a familiarity with it, this whole story, with what was going on here. Jesus was traveling. He was tired. He sat down to rest at the well while, he, while his disciples went on into town to buy lunch. So Jesus is alone at the well. Understand this. Very important point here in the story. Samaritans were off limits to Jews. Completely off limits. They hated them. They despised them. Okay? Women of that culture were subservient to men. Okay? Did not hold the same level in the culture that men did. And so what we've got here is we've got a situation where Jesus is alone at the well and a Samaritan woman, a subservient, hated person approaches the well. Okay, so hopefully we have that concept. All right, from there, what we're going to witness right now is Jesus breaking social, political, and religious norms because he speaks to the Samaritan woman. He simply asks for a drink of water. That shocks her, surprises her. What's he doing? And she looks at him and said, well, you don't have anything to get water with. And he goes on to explain, if you only knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. And I would give you water that you would never thirst again then. Well, that kind of piques her interest. Wow, I wouldn't have to come here and draw water anymore. I wouldn't have to venture out to this well. So could you give me some of that water? Let's look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She's puzzled. And so then in verses 23 and 24, I want to read the version from the message, because I think this captures a little bit of the interaction between Jesus and this woman. It says here, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking out for. For those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. Now again, we don't want to forget this concept of balance. We don't want to forget the concept of finding Jesus, he's the way, the truth, the life. And there's a pursuit here. Those of us who are older, Greg, you and I, <laughs> we like to talk about how old we are. 
uh, I would venture to guess that we know a little bit more about truth today than we did 10 years ago. And I would venture to guess that all of us sitting in here would nod our heads and say, yes, we know a little bit more about truth today than we did last year. Because of experience, because of study, because of actually learning specific things, we grow. That's the concept of a pursuit of truth. One of my questions that, that keeps going over and over in my mind, do we ever arrive at knowing all truth? I, I mean, I keep asking that question. The best answer I've come up with is not in this life. Once we see Jesus, we'll have it. But as we, as we look and, and kind of process this concept of pursuit, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. God's searching our hearts. He sees what we do and knows why we do it. He sees what we do and knows why we do it. Your worship, and let's interpret this here as our way of living, our way of life, must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. I've really enjoyed Steve's lessons on the Spirit and the working of the Spirit uh, in our lives. It's something that I, I believe very strongly in. Uh, as a Christian, I, I say it like this. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in God instances. And that's how I want to go about living. The concept here, the idea here in this pursuit of truth is, again... This key of balance, my spirit with God's truth. Not my interpretation of truth, not my, what, my opinion of truth, not offering all of the, the many different ways that I think, but searching and trying to find that standard of truth that is God's. Truth is pursued. Truth does not change. We grow and gain new understanding of truth and so on, but truth does not change. Now, I want to move over to John chapter 8, and I want to look here at the event with Jesus' encounter with the woman caught in adultery. And I'd like to read this starting in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
So here we have a situation where Jesus' teaching is butting heads with, at least in the religious leaders' minds, the law. They believe they have him trapped. They believe that no matter what he answers, if he says stone her, he goes against the concept, this abstract, this way of living of love that he has been teaching. If he says, no, don't stone her, then he goes against the law. So they really believe they have him backed up in a corner. Seems kind of humorous to me that they constantly keep thinking they have Jesus backed up into a corner. You know, I want to say, guys, when are you going to figure this out? When are you going to learn? You know, just be quiet, if nothing else. But they keep at him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Wow. Every time I read that, I can't help but to think there's so much in just that statement where Jesus continues his teaching, but really encompasses the concept of love right now. If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus' statement is one that directs each of us to search our hearts. Right now, we've got to to look inside. We've got to take a look. And I think it's a very interesting note here. Remember what I said earlier about the culture of the time and the subservient or the second-level nature of, that women were considered. And here you have the Jewish religious leaders, a woman caught in a sinful act, being thrust in front of Jesus. And it's just really interesting to note that the woman is standing while Jesus is below her, stooped down. Now, I don't know if that has any significance or not, But to me, that is the essence of a humble servant attitude of love. Goes on. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now Jesus straightens up. Now Jesus stands up and looks directly at the woman. What is she thinking? What's he going to do to me? Okay, I survived them. Oh boy, 
I'm about to get it. I know what I've done. It was wrong. And I, I can just, I can feel the tension in her and her head down, not even able to look. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She knew they were all gone. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Again, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Again, that balance. Love and truth. Love and obedience. Jesus did not condone the sin in any way. He told her enough of that. In very small words, he simply said, leave your life of sin. Don't do that anymore. But I'm giving you grace. I'm offering it to you. Obedience to God's standard for the relationship between man and woman. Obedience to God's standard for the relationship between man and woman. That's what Jesus had presented to her at that point in time. If I want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, I should watch what Jesus did. As I watch what Jesus is doing, I'm seeing him working tirelessly to unite people, to save people, to teach people. If we would simply do what Jesus did, instead of arguing about what Jesus said, the world would change. Allow me to say that again. If we would simply do what Jesus did, instead of arguing about what Jesus said, the world would change. I heard it remarked, I heard a remark earlier that said, if I were accused of being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict me? I hope so. I certainly hope so. Can I answer someone who wants to know Jesus with a life being lived to reflect him? Is my answer the way I go about things, the way I do things? And again, this is that concept of love. This is our defining of love. So how I walk with the broken speaks louder than how I sit with the great. Let's pray together, please. Lord God, accept us as sinners and and fill us with your spirit to reflect Jesus as best as we can. 
we completely forget about love, the greatest command, the command that all others hinge on. We set that aside for our comfort way too often. The reason you said that love is the greatest command and the command that all others hinge on is that love is an active, vibrant, changing, moldable concept. We needed to know what love should look like, so you gave us your son. Jesus' life, death, sacrifice were the greatest of gifts. He was willing to follow your purpose even while knowing how it would end. He who was eternal did not want to have to die, but he did. He was obedient to love. And then, and then he resurrected, conquered death, and yes, he now lives forever and ever. Make us love as he loved, as you love. Make us seek a relationship with him. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Let the lost be found and the dead be raised. In the here and now, let love invade. Let the church live love. Our God will see that we believe. We believe. And the gates of hell will not prevail. For the power of God has torn the veil. Now we know that your love will never fail. We believe. We believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we read this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I was asked this morning, as I came in, uh, if I was going to follow my notes or just wing it. I have a tendency to just wing it. Um, I've really tried to stay on task here. Folks, uh, if you stop and look around, it doesn't take long to look before you understand that Satan is alive and well on earth. But we cannot let that overwhelm us. If I were coaching a game and going into that game, they said, you've already won. The outcome's already been taken care of. You've won. You win. First of all, I'd check Las Vegas and so on and so forth and wonder what was happening. But 
but I've, I've already won, so how am I going to go about things? And then all of a sudden, halfway through, the team I, I, I'm coaching is really behind. We're not doing things really well. We're struggling, as a matter of fact. We're hurting. But they said we win. And, and I believe that. We win. So something's got to happen. Something's going to happen. There's going to be intervention of some kind that we win. And we do. That intervention was Jesus himself. And no matter... I don't know if you've taken time to watch the videos of the people talking to the young man that killed their mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters in Charleston. But if you haven't, you need to pull that up. Because those folks understand who wins. They understand who wins. And we have a great deal going on. But folks, we are a church established by God. We are followers of Christ. We need to love like he does. If you are not a follower of Christ, we want to invite you to join us. We want you to join we want you to join our army. Our group, our gang. Here we are. Jesus is our leader, he's our follower. He's got it. He's got this. We want to invite you to join us. I also want to invite those of you who feel that there's, there just needs to be a renewal. There needs to be a revival in, in you. It's time that you turn away from some of the stuff that's been going on. It's time that you make a commitment. No more wishy-washy. No more straddling the fence. No more coming here than going back there. So on and so forth. It's time to make a commitment. And we would invite you as well. The elders will be here in front. We would love to serve you in any way that you need served this morning. But before we leave, folks, make that commitment. Make that commitment. Don't go out the doors without it. Because you're walking on very, very thin ice. We need Jesus. I need him. I was talking to John this morning. He was talking about his eight grandkids that he was with yesterday. I, I got him beat with 11, but he said he's still working on that. What frightens me 
is for them. It scares me. I only know one way to beat that fear. And that's to offer them Jesus. I hope we can do that. I really believe we are here. But not just as a church, but as individuals in our own families that we are doing that.